Let's continue our praise. You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness you give hope you restore every heart that is broken and great are you Lord it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise Pour out our praise, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. You give life, you are love. You bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken, and great are you, Lord, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. Pour out our praise, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. Pour out our praise, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. shout your praise our hearts will cry these bones will sing great are you Lord and all the earth will shout your praise our hearts will cry these bones will sing great are you Come on, church, let's rejoice. And all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. Great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. Pour out our praise, it's your breath. In our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you all. 
catch your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise pour out our praise it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise to you only Amen. And Father, we do thank you for the fact that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on a, on a cruel cross where you were beaten, where you were struck down, all for the sake of uh, regaining uh, relationship with human beings, Lord, such as those that are in this room. We can't ever express our appreciation enough to you, Lord, but I pray that this morning as we're in this service that we could just forget about ourselves for an hour, hour and a half, and just put all our focus on you, God. Lord, I pray that you would rid any distractions, even right now, God, that you would cast Satan out of this place and let your glory reign over each and every one of us, God. Pray for those who may not know you as Lord and Savior, God, that some way, shape, or form during this service that you would just grab hold of their hearts and allow them to know that they need a Savior named Jesus Christ. They need a Lord in their life because the TV's not going to give it to them. Books written by men aren't going to give it to them, God. But Jesus Christ, who died upon the cross, will give anyone hope. And I pray that you would do that today, God, if it be your will. It's in your precious name of Jesus we do pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, we just sang some beautiful songs about how God is so great. And many times we come into a worship service, we do sing those songs about great is the Lord. Great are you, Lord. And many different songs that praise God. Well, why do we praise God? Why is it that we Praise a holy God. Because an infinite God reached down to earth in the form of a man and bought our sal brought us salvation and brought us freedom. And he did that, as it says in Romans chapter 5. And he tells us in verse 8 through 11, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that yet while we were sinners... Christ died for us, much more than having how been, have been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. In other words, we have been made friends with God Almighty through his son, Jesus Christ. My prayer is if you don't have that friend today, that you would believe upon the name of Jesus. This next song um, speaks of his death on the cross to gain life for each and every one of us. Oh, praise the name.
the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise His name forevermore. For endless days we will see been bought by the blood of Jesus, would you say amen? Amen. If you want to worship Him today with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, would you stand up as we praise our Lord and Savior? As that's what He did for us, let's give it back to Him. Amen. Oh, the Lord our God, oh, praise His name forevermore for endless days we will sing your praise oh lord oh lord our god oh praise the name of the lord our god oh praise his name forevermore for endless days we will sing you 
How do we know this Jesus? You come in today and you think, I don't know that Jesus you're singing about. I don't know that Jesus you're singing to. How do we get freedom from hell? And Romans chapter 10, verse 13 tells us, For whoever will call upon or believe upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's just that easy. Believing him in your heart uh, and shouting it and proclaiming it and not being ashamed of who Jesus Christ is. And in God's word... In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me, Christ Jesus. He's the bridge to, to God Almighty. This next song speaks of that as we continue to praise him the way. Through every battle, through every heartbreak, through every circumstance I believe that you are my fortress Oh, you are my portion You are my hiding place Oh, I believe you are the way The truth The life and I believe you are the way, the truth, the life. I believe through every blessing, through every promise, through every breath I take. I believe you are provider. Oh, you are protector, you are the one I love, and I believe you are the way, the truth, the life, and I believe you are the way, the truth, the life. I believe you are. Think about the God Almighty who came and met you. He knows your name. He knows your every flaw. He's here to meet you. Amen. It's a new horizon, and I'm set on you. And you meet me here today with mercies that are new. All my fears and doubts. Yes, they can all come to Because they can't stay long When I'm here with you It's a new horizon And I'm set on you 
And you meet me here today with mercies that are new. All my fears and doubts, and they can all come to because they can't stay long when I am here. You are the way, the truth, the life. Oh, I believe you are the way, the truth, the life. Yes, I believe you are. It's a new horizon, and I'm set on you. And you meet me here today with mercies that are new. All my fears and doubts. Yes, they can all come to because they can't stay long when I'm near you are in the way. Let's rejoice in the truth, in the life. I believe you are the way, the truth, the life. I believe you are. Amen. Please, please be seated. And uh, let me ask Cheryl Carroll to go ahead and make her way to the platform. Glad uh, Banks and Cheryl are still with us. They're awaiting the birth of their next grandchild. So, uh, so since you're here, I'm assuming you're still waiting. Uh, but I've asked Cheryl uh, to come this morning. Wanted her to share uh, more with you ladies about the uh, winter dinner uh, for you, the end of this month, and uh, give you more details. And so, uh, Cheryl, you share that information with us. Thank you. Good morning. I actually have two invitations I'd like to extend to all of the ladies in our church. The first is, of course, about the winter dinner, which is Thursday, January 31st, 6.30 in the evening, down in our fellowship hall. We are going to be blessed by hearing Rita Bice's testimony. I've known Rita for a long time, and I've been blessed knowing Rita and knowing how God has worked in her life. And I can assure you, you would be blessed by hearing Rita share. So I encourage you to come. Javon's going to be preparing a wonderful meal for us. We'll be selling tickets in the vestibule after church service the next couple of Sundays. You can also buy your tickets from Patty in the church office. Deadline for tickets is January the 28th, so don't put it off. Hope you all can come. If anyone has a difficulty, expense, a ride, Whatever there may need be, don't let any of that keep you from coming to spend the evening with us. You let me know, and we'll be glad to work with you any way we can. The other invitation I wanted to extend to all of the ladies here is if you're not already a part, to become a part of our Titus II ministry. We are starting a new series of lessons, if you will, next month in February. This ministry is a small group ministry for our women. We meet once monthly mostly in homes, but sometimes in a coffee shop, varying times of the day, a week, mornings, have morning groups, an afternoon group, we have evening groups. Um, information is on a flyer that you'll see posted around the church, but I'll also have some in the vestibule after the service today. 
this past year, we spent time looking at how God taught us to pray. His disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. So we spent time this past year looking at the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to build on this, that this year by looking at what other parts of Scripture tell us about our personal communion with Him that we know is prayer. So we just enjoy and delight in every single woman being a part of a group. So if you'd like to know more, let me know or Janet Fluker know. I'll have information at the vestibule after the service for you too. Bless you. Thanks. Thank you, Cheryl. And I do encourage you ladies to take uh, both of those opportunities. I know my wife uh, truly uh, cherishes her time with her Titus II group. And I would encourage all you ladies to uh, get involved in one of those groups and, of course, uh, take advantage of the ladies' uh, winter dinner. Uh, I'm going to wait and dismiss our children after our uh, youth sing for us, right after the offertory prayer. I figured the children would enjoy uh, hearing the youth, and so after they sing, I will dismiss them. Uh, just a couple of things before we do share the offertory prayer. Uh, so happy to announce to you that in terms of our Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions, uh, our goal was uh, $20,000, and we're still seeing some money come in for that. Uh, but the last count that I received was uh, $26,500. So again, thank you for your very generous giving uh, to that. Uh, thank you for your end-of-the-year giving. Don't have all the... Uh, 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 Accounting on that, but uh, I know we ended the year well, and we just appreciate uh, your faithfulness in this area of our church's uh, life. Uh, also, as we go to the Lord in prayer, we want to pray for uh, Jenny, our uh, church pianist. She lost her grandmother this past week, uh, Mrs. Coleman, 100 years old uh, when she passed away. Uh, the funeral was uh, yesterday, so uh, please pray for Jenny and her family. And then we've been asked uh, to pray a very special prayer, and Alan, please remember this when you do come and pray. Uh, Jude Greer is the Minister of Music at First Baptist Thomaston, uh, Georgia. And I won't go into all the details. He's a man in his early 40s, and he's just balancing between life and death. Uh, a very critical uh, situation, and uh, we've been asked, along with other churches, to join First Baptist Thomaston in praying for Jude, uh, that God would intervene and in mercy uh, raise him up, that he might continue to uh, minister for the gospel of uh, Christ. So Alan, uh, Alan, of course, one of our elders here at Edgewood, I'll ask him to uh, lead us in our offertory prayer. And then men, you please come after Alan prays to receive the offering. Let's pray. Father, I do lift up my brother, Mr. Greer, and Lord, just ask you to surround him with your love and provision. Lord, I pray that you would uh, give his doctors wisdom as they provide for him. And Father, just uh, I pray that you, you, uh, you use your hand to guide those people in, in trying to minister. Lord, I'm just reminded this morning, Father, as we sang these hymns and praised you, uh, Lord, uh, you are the greatest giver of this ever been. Father, you give us life, you give us salvation, you give us provision in every aspect of our life. And Lord, it's out of that marvelous provision you've given us that our hearts raise up and an, an idea of worship, Lord, uh, to return to you what you've already given to us. Lord, let us realize that uh, giving is always a, a matter of worship. So we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Mm -hmm.
well, we do appreciate our, our uh, young people and uh, their ministry to us. Let, let me say that the youth choir uh, meets on uh, Sunday afternoons, 4.30, right here. So if there are uh, young people that would like to uh, participate uh, in the youth music ministry, you just come at 4.30, and Andy would be glad uh, to uh, plug you plug you in. So at this time, we will uh, dismiss our boys and girls for their children's worship down in uh, Praiseville. If we have guests and you have children, they are more than welcome to participate. Simply release your children out there, and uh, Jonathan will herd them like cats down stairs. And that's where you will pick them up when we, uh, when we conclude uh, this morning. We also have a full nursery downstairs if you need to take advantage of that. Uh, we have a baby cry room if you need that as well where you can continue to hear uh, the audio of the uh, message and uh, take care of your little one. Let me also mention I was talking about uh, uh, finances and how uh, generous this church has always been. I will mention because there might be someone who would like to give to this over and above your regular tithes and offerings. Uh, we just recently discovered, uh, and you may have noticed it the last few months, uh, we've been having some issues uh, with the sound system. And uh, we checked that out, and what we discovered was that we had a significant problem with most of our speakers. This cluster right up above me, there's also speakers on each side, and uh, the uh, nature of the problem could not be repaired which is meaning we're having to buy new speakers for the sanctuary uh, at the cost of right at about $16,000. And so uh, that will definitely help our sound system, and we're very thankful for this system. It served us well for many, many years. We have no complaints. It's just the nature of living in a world where you're dealing with material things that deteriorate and break down, and we're just at that point where that is going to be uh, a necessity. And uh, so uh, that money will be expended to uh, acquire that. And again, if you would like to give a special gift over and above your regular tithes and offering gifts to assist in that, it would be uh, greatly uh, appreciated. Uh, please take your Bible and turn to uh, Revelation uh, chapter 2. And uh, just keep it open there. We'll be uh, focusing uh, on verses 8 through 11, Christ's message to the church at Smyrna. So you just turn there and have it ready, and we'll get there in just a moment. Uh, but last Sunday, I began a new sermon series here at the first of the year entitled, What Jesus Looks For in a Church. In other words, when Jesus is looking at a church, what is most important to him? What are his priorities and values? Uh, and we're doing this by examining Christ's messages to the seven churches uh, that are mentioned there in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Uh, as we saw last week, of course, the Apostle John uh, wrote the book of Revelation. The initial recipients of the book were these seven churches. All seven of the churches were located in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which today is western Turkey. So all of these seven churches uh, would be located in what today is western Turkey. Uh, the Romans divided Asia Minor into seven postal districts. And it is interesting to note that the seven churches were located in the seven cities 
which were the hubs for disseminating mail in each of the postal districts. All seven cities were connected by a circular road that began in Ephesus and ended in Laodicea, a distance of right at about 289 miles. And we saw last week that John uh, wrote the book uh, from the island of Patmos, where he was exiled, banished, uh, because of his testimony for Christ. And he would have sent the book first uh, to Ephesus, which would have been a port city, and would have been the nearest city to him, only about 60 miles away. And then the book would have simply traveled that circular road in the order in which you find the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, from Ephesus, it would have gone northwest, about 40 miles uh, to Smyrna. And then from Smyrna, it would have gone just due north, right up to uh, Pergamos. And then from Pergamos, it would have headed uh, east uh, to uh, Thyatira, then to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and then finally to Laodicea. Now, you'll notice in your sermon notes that I begin with a very brief review from last week. We looked at the uh, letter to the church at Ephesus, and uh, so look at that with me. Uh, despite uh, faithfully serving Christ uh, for 40 years, uh, they did not love him as they once did. You remember Jesus said, uh, you have what? Left your first love. That word left being aphemai, which means to neglect, uh, to abandon, to desert. That word was actually used to write a bill of divorcement in that day. And so although they were very involved in a lot of activities and ministries, uh, they became so involved that they lost sight of the reason they were doing all of that. And the primary motivation being their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as we continue with that little review, and as his bride, they had stopped giving Jesus the one thing he wanted most. The one thing he wants most from every church, and that is heartfelt worship. Their Christianity had deteriorated into a routine to endure rather than a relationship to enjoy. And Christ, knowing that this is the first step in all spiritual decline, which, if not co uh, corrected, will in inevitably lead to unfaithfulness, he challenged the church at Ephesus to repent and return to him as their first love. And he warned them if they did not, if they did not correct this issue, uh, the light of their testimony would grow dimmer and dimmer and eventually become extinguished. Now, in this sermon series, we're asking three questions. What does Jesus look for in the church? You know, we talked about this consumer mentality in the American church today where everyone is shopping for a church uh, that sort of meets their needs, what they want, what they're looking for. Well, I thought it would be interesting to ask the question, well, what does Jesus look for? Since he's the one who died for the church, shed his blood for the church, purchased the church as his bride, what is he looking for? And then the second question, does Jesus find what he's looking for right here at Edgewood Baptist Church? And then third, are we willing to give Jesus what he's looking for regardless of the changes it demands? Now, we learn from Christ's message to Ephesus that the most important thing, again, that he's looking for in a church is heartfelt 
worship, where each and every day He is our first love. He is our greatest passion and pursuit in life, where we are giving Him our undivided attention, our undying affection, and our uncompromising allegiance, and again, each and every day, uh, where we have a relationship with Christ, where He is truly preeminent in our lives, where He has no rival in our lives, there's never a refusal to Him, and there's no retreat from what He's called us to do. Now, this morning, we come to Christ's message uh, to the church at Smyrna, uh, the church the devil tried uh, to intimidate. Now, before we read his message to the church, let me give you just a little uh, background in relationship to the uh, city and the church. Uh, Smyrna was a coastal city located about 45, 40 miles, as I mentioned, uh, northwest of Ephesus. Today, it goes by the name of Izmir, which is the third largest city in the country of Turkey. The city was uh, built, literally built on the slopes of Mount Pegasus and on the flatland around the nearby harbor. It was described on coins at that time as first in Asia in beauty and size. It was known as the pride of Asia or the crown of Asia. The city of Smyrna uh, derived its name from one of its principal products, and that was a sweet, fragrant perfume made from myrrh, which is uh, a gum resin taken from a shrub-like tree. Uh, despite its beauty, and here's the key for us in this study, despite the beauty of this city, it may have been one of the most dangerous places for a Christian to live in the Roman Empire. It was a center for the worship of the Roman emperor, and anyone who refused to publicly confess Caesar is Lord was liable to be executed. In addition, there was an extremely uh, powerful and influential Jewish population in the city who were hostile uh, towards the Christian faith. So to the church in Smyrna, the Lord Jesus addressed these words, and so you follow along with me in your Bible, beginning at verse 8 of Revelation chapter 2, and we'll read through verse 11. And to the angel, or the pastor of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last, who is dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Look at the introduction there in your sermon notes. If the first mark Jesus looks for in a church is heartfelt 
worship, which we learn in his message to the church at Ephesus. The second is faithfulness in suffering. Faithfulness in suffering, which proves the genuineness of our love for Christ. It proves that He truly is my first love, is I remain faithful to Him even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, even when I'm in pain and I'm suffering. Uh, And this is what Jesus found in the church in Smyrna. It's only one of two churches of the seven where Jesus gives no condemnation. He only commends them and encourages them. Now, we're going to uh, look, you'll see it in your sermon notes, at the suffering that this church endured for Christ. And then we're going to turn our attention to the comfort they received from Christ. And then finally, we'll look at the lessons that we can learn uh, today from the church at Smyrna. So first, look at the suffering endured for Christ by this church. There were five tools uh, the devil used to try to intimidate uh, the Christians in Smyrna, to instill fear in their hearts, and as a result, destroy their faith where they would retreat from Christ in the advance of the gospel and, uh, and diminish their faith. And the first one was crushing pressure. That's the first tool that he used, crushing pressure. Verse 9 reads, Jesus is speaking, He says to this church, he says, I know your tribulation. The word tribulation is thalipsis in the Greek, which means literally, that word literally means to be crushed by intense pressure. The word was used in classical Greek to describe the torture of slowly being crushed to death under the weight of an enormous boulder. In the case of the church in Smyrna, the tribulation refers, of course, to the Romans' government attempt to crush Christianity. Persecution of Christians in Smyrna was intense, uh, as we mentioned, because of its fierce loyalty to Rome and the fact that it was a hotbed for emperor worship. The Romans, and this is important for us to understand, they didn't give a hoot. They really didn't care what your religion was. And there were many religions, thousands of religions and uh, idols and Greek and Roman gods in in the Roman Empire. They didn't care what, what religion you embraced as long as you went into one of their temples once a year annually, burned a little incense, and then you said out loud, at a, a bust of Caesar, uh, Caesar is Lord, indicating that you are acknowledging him as Caesar claimed to be the supreme deity, the Lord of all lords. And refusal to do so was considered an act of civil disobedience, which could be punishable by death. Now, the Christians in Smyrna refused to do this because of their commitment to Jesus as the one true God and the true Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And this resulted in intense persecution. Now, it's amazing 
when you not only observe this period of history, but other periods of history where the church was under the, the persecution, that it always produced the strongest and purest character because that character often is forged in the furnace of adversity and persecution. So crushing pressure, number one. The second thing that they were struggling with was destitution. Not only crushing pressure from the Roman government that was trying to eliminate Christianity, but also destitution. Jesus said, I know your tribulation and your, notice, poverty, but you are rich. Now, we typically define poverty as being below a certain level of income compared to others in society. But the word Jesus used here for poverty, and there were several words he could have choose to use, but the word that he used refers to object poverty, to being totally destitute, to having nothing at all. Christians in Smyrna were being blackballed from obtaining employment because of their faith in Christ. Their property, their possessions were being confiscated from them. Uh, but notice, despite their poverty, Jesus says what? But you are rich. You're rich spiritually, despite your poverty materially. I think of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. This is not in your sermon notes, but listen how it reads. He says, for you, and this is referring to Christians during this period of time that were persecuted, for you accepted joyfully. Don't miss this. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Why? Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. And of course, they're referring to their eternal riches in heaven. And again, if you examine church history, you'll discover that persecution has never been fatal to the church. But I'll tell you something, prosperity and affluence has often been fatal to the church. Look at the third thing that they were dealing with. Not just crushing pressure, not just destitution, but slander. Verse 9 continues, And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The church was slandered by this population of unsaved Jews in the city of Smyrna. They spread false rumors about the church in order to incite uh, public opinion against them. And let me just give you a few examples. And these are the type of things that were being said about these believers. Uh, they were uh, accused of being cannibals. You said cannibals? Yeah. Because they said they ate human flesh. And they drank human blood. When they celebrated communion together. The Lord's Supper together. They accused these believers of immorality because of a perversion of the holy kiss, which believers used as a greeting. They accused believers of political rebellion because of their refusal to go into the temple and sacrifice to Caesar. And they actually accused Christians, and this was very, very common, they accused them of being atheist because they rejected the thousands of idols in the Roman Empire 
and the, all the Greek and Roman gods and, and the fact that they believed in an invisible God. Uh, the unsaved Jews' hostility towards the Christians was so great. Notice Jesus called them what? A synagogue of Satan. And one of Satan's names is what? He's an accuser of the brethren. And, he, and we know he often uses unsaved people to be his mouthpiece to slander and to discredit the testimony of Christians. And this is why the Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6 that the real battle is not with flesh and blood enemies, but, what? but with what? The satanic powers motivating those individuals to attack us. Look at the fourth thing that they were dealing with, imprisonment. Crushing pressure, destitution, slander, and now imprisonment. In verse 10 we read, Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you in prison. Now don't rush over that statement. Think of the pressure that these families were under. Many of them just living underground because of the situation. Always fearing in any moment a raid. Think of the trauma of parents being separated from their children and taken off to prison. So don't run over that real quick. They constantly lived under that, that, that pressure and the knowledge that that could happen at any moment, which leads us to the fifth thing that he mentions, not just imprisonment, but martyrdom. In verse 10, he, he continues, be faithful unto what? Death. Be faithful unto death. And notice, and don't miss this, Jesus did not promise them deliverance in this life but call them to die before they would deny their faith in Him. And that death would be in the stadium in Smyrna, which would mean either being torn apart by wild beasts or burned to death, like Polycarp, which was probably the most famous martyr uh, in the city of Smyrna. Polycarp was martyred for Christ 50 years after this was written, uh, Polycarp was a disciple of John, actually knew John, interacted with the Apostle John, and at the age of 86, uh, they martyred him there in the stadium in Smyrna. And uh, I would encourage you to go to Fox's Book of Martyrs and read the account of uh, Polycarp's uh, death. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing, and it's a wonderful testimony of a man's love for Christ and loyalty to Christ and, of course, Christ's grace and loyalty uh, to him. Now, let me just say a couple things uh, generally about this passage. What we've just looked at should put the nails in the coffin of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel of today. I don't know how you would reconcile this, what many of these preachers and false teachers are saying is that uh, Jesus will give you every dream that you ever wanted. And uh, you just make your list and you confess it and it will come to be if you just have uh, faith. No, he, he didn't promise them deliverance. He said be faithful to death. It also should put the death to easy believism. To this notion that I can receive Jesus as my Savior, to have my sins forgiven, 
and my ticket to heaven, and then at some later point, I can determine whether I'm going to follow Him as Lord. Jesus, in the Gospels, in calling people to salvation, often said things like, hey, if you're going to come after me, you're going to have to be willing to take up your cross. You're going to have to be willing to, die your, to deny yourself. You're going to have to be willing to die for me. And if you're not willing to die for me, you're not worthy of me. Salvation is in the person of Christ, not some formula, not some prayer, but it in the person of Christ, embracing Him. And the Savior is Jesus the Lord. You can't cut Him up and determine, I like this part, but I don't like this part. And the very essence of salvation is repentance and faith. It's turning from running my own life to turn to Jesus as my greatest treasure, the most priceless possession of my life, to follow Him in life and death. I mean, this was Paul's testimony about his own conversion. He said, I counted all things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Him. That's not talking about some deeper life. That's not a call to discipleship. That's a man's conversion. And in true conversion, the whole tenor of a person's life, his whole direction is turned to Jesus to follow him regardless the cost. Now, crushing pressure, destitution, slander, imprisonment, and martyrdom. Let me just, before we move on, let me say one more thing. We look at that and we say, okay, we're not dealing with that with such an intense trial as they were. Well, realize we should be able still to apply the truth. You may not be knowing as crushing pressure as they knew, but you know pressure, right? You know trials, you know problems, you know difficulties, you know adversity. You may not know, know destitution as they knew it, being totally destitute, having nothing, but you struggle with needs, legitimate needs, where you're looking to God to meet those needs. Uh, you may not be being slandered as they are being slandered, but we all, we all struggle with, with dealing with people, and often people who do attack us, who will say lies about us, that will say mistruths about us, uh, that can uh, upset us. And yes, we may not be actually put behind bars, but often we are imprisoned by what? Life's circumstances. Life's trials where you feel trapped and there's no way out. And it's very dark, it's very black, it's very, very painful. And, you know, I may not be facing martyrdom today, but yet today there are things that I'm asked to surrender where I'm asked to release expectations and rights to follow God and to serve others. So as we move on to see the comfort they received, uh, we should be able to apply this truth to our own trials and adversities. And look at the, the first comfort that they received from Christ. And this is really uh, beautiful. He is victorious, referring to Jesus. Jesus is victorious. I love how Jesus opened his message to this church who is suffering such severe persecution. He says, I'm the first and the last who is dead and has come to life. Jesus Christ 
experienced the worst that could be done to a human being by other human beings. True. Jesus Christ experienced the very worst that could be done to a human being. But through the resurrection from the grave, He rose victorious over it all. In other words, He got the last laugh. He won. And what comfort that would have brought to these believers in Smyrna, what comfort it should bring to our hearts. It may appear right now that my hopes are gone, that they are nailed to a cross. I may be crying out, just like Jesus did on Good Friday. My God, my God, why me have you forsaken? But then I look to Jesus and remember, hey, it may be Friday, but Sundays are coming. And that's the hope of every believer, no matter what we're facing, no matter what we're confronting. Not only is he victorious, look at that second truth. He is all-knowing. He is all-knowing. Notice, he says, I know. Circle that word, know. I know, he says, your tribulation and your poverty and the blasphemy. Jesus could say, I know your tribulation. Not because he was just aware of what they were going through, but because he too experienced tribulation to the point of sweating drops of blood. He literally was crushed underneath the weight of a cross. Jesus could say, I know your poverty. Not because he was aware of what they were going through, because he said in the Gospels, what? The foxes have holes. And the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus could say, I know the blasphemy, because he too experienced the slander of religious legalists who called him a gluttonous man, a drunkard. They literally called him the son of the devil, and he experienced the traitor's kiss. No one, no one, no one can know or understand like Jesus. Therefore, no one can give the comfort like he can. Amen? Look at the third truth. He's in control. He's victorious. He's all-knowing. But he's also in control. Notice, he says, Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Please notice. God controls a believer's circumstances. Jesus not only has perfect knowledge of our present trials, but he has perfect foreknowledge of our future afflictions. Also notice he sets limits on our suffering. Jesus said the devil is about to cast what? Some of you in prison and that the persecution will last what? Only ten days. So a limit is set on the number of Christians to suffer and on how long the trial would last. God said to the devil, this far and no further. What Satan, now listen, what Satan proposes to destroy your life, to destroy the church, God permits to purify your life and purify the church and provide the opportunity to demonstrate before a watching world that yes, He is my first love and Jesus is better than life itself. 
I think of two absolutely magnificent promises of God that you're all familiar with. Again, not in your sermon notes, but Romans 8, 28. We know, we know, we know, we know that God, what? Causes all things to work together for our good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And the reason for that is verse 29. We've been predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. And you've heard me say this from this pulpit, that word predestined means pro-horizo in the Greek text. It's where we get the word horizon. It has the idea of putting a boundary around something. The idea is God has placed a boundary around us. We're in His heads of protection. In other words, He's placed limitations on every believer's life. And that limitation is... I won't let anything get through that hedge and touch you unless I know I can use it to make you more like my son and accomplish my plans and purposes in your life and provide a platform for you to make Jesus known to a lost world. And let's also recognize that when he said all things work for our good, again, that's our spiritual development and our opportunity to make Jesus known. It, it doesn't mean we're necessarily going to have a good outcome in this life. We may not see that good outcome to what? We get to the next life. And we know our eternal reward. Another great promise. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation, no trial, no adversity, no pressure has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is what? Faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you will be able to endure it. And those Smyrnan Christians knew that. They knew God would be faithful. That he was, if he was calling them to be imprisoned, to be martyrs, to use that as a platform to demonstrate the beauty and the glory and the worth and value of Jesus Christ. He knew, they knew he would give them the grace to endure that trial. When we are suffering, we find comfort in Jesus, who's victorious, all-knowing, in control. And look at the fourth thing. Praise him. In all those trials, he is purposeful. There is purpose. Verse 10 says, his purpose in the testing or the suffering is that you may be, notice, tested. Circle that word tested. There's the purpose in the suffering, that you may be tested. Now, sometimes the purpose in suffering is to test and strengthen our faith in God. That tribulation, that crushing, crushing pressure. He uses sort of his resistance training, weight training. Whereas the weight of that pressure comes upon us, it gives us the opportunity to build our spiritual muscles. This is what James is saying. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials and knowing what? That the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance, strength. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Other times, the purpose in the suffering is to burn away the dross of sin and to refine our character. Isaiah chapter 48 verse 10 reads, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. So God allows us to go through that suffering to deal with the impurities in our life and to make us more like His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Other times, the purpose in the suffering is to remove all the man-made crutches 
we find it so easily to lean on as substitutes for Christ. And he does that to take us into deeper intimacy with Jesus so that we'll learn to depend upon him alone. And in that dependence, know that closeness, know that intimacy that we've never known before. Remember when Paul was struggling with his thorn in the flesh, God told him what? Paul, Paul, my power will be perfected in your weakness. I'm not going to remove this thorn. But here's the promise, Paul. I'm going to use this thorn to perfect my power in your weakness to take you deeper into your, into your intimacy with me. And when Paul heard that, how did he respond? He said, most gladly, therefore, I'm going to stop whining about this. I'm going to stop complaining about this. I'm going to stop begging God to remove this. Most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. But don't miss this. The purpose in all suffering, in all suffering without exception, is to test our love for Jesus and to give us an opportunity, again in the eyes of a watching world, to demonstrate that love. And the reason for that is, and it's very simple, a person only suffers for what he values most. Faithfulness in suffering demonstrates how much I value my relationship with Jesus Christ. It demonstrates how much I love Jesus, that He truly is my first love. See, the persecution of the church at Smyrna was a test. It was a test of their love for Jesus. And they proved, they stepped to the plate and they proved by the grace of God by God's power working in them as they yielded to Him, they proved the depth of their love by remaining faithful even unto death. Like the apostles before them, they rejoiced, literally rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ, worthy to die for Christ. So we need to ask ourselves, and this is a very personal question each person has to ask, what does your response to suffering? Say about your love for Jesus. What does your response to suffering say about how much you value Christ? I mean, is He your first love? Or is the reason you're struggling, the reason you're whining, complaining, becoming bitter, is because your greatest value is not truly Jesus, but it's the things of this world that you're beginning to lose. Whether it's material things, whether it's relationships. So we've looked at the suffering the church in Smyrna, that Smyrna endured for Christ, and the comfort the church received from Christ. Uh, look, at the, uh, look at the next verse in your sermon notes. I, I wanted to put this in here because I think it just really sums up everything that we've said so far. 2 Corinthians 1.5 For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with His comfort through Christ. Amen? The more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with His comfort through Christ. Now, very quickly, in the few moments we have left, look at the, left, look at the lessons learned from Smyrna. Number one, expect to suffer. If you're a believer, expect to suffer. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire, notice that word all, circle that word all, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
if you truly love Jesus as your first love, rather than this world, you are on a collision course with this world. You're on a collision course with the culture that currently exists in the United States of America because of the absolutes of Christianity, because Jesus is Lord, and He requires a man to give up his autonomy and surrender all to follow Him, and the exclusivity of Christ, that He is the only way, the truth, and the life. The world hates that. They don't want to bow the knee. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. You shouldn't be surprised by suffering. You should expect it. Number two, stop being afraid. You say, well, that's easy said, hard to do, but that's exactly what Jesus said to them. Do not fear what you're about to suffer in verse 10. Behold, the devil, yes, is about to cast some of you in prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. And I love Psalm 56.4. This is Psalm of David. This is when David was fleeing from Saul out in the wilderness uh, for over, you may not be aware of this, but for over a decade, David was the most wanted in Israel. He was a fugitive literally on the run, out in the wilderness, being sought after by the Israeli troops to exterminate him. And this is near the beginning of that time. He becomes so desperate, he actually goes to the Philistines for help, and they were going to execute him, and God miraculously delivered David. And he wrote this psalm out of that, and notice what he said. I, and I love the, uh, the practicality of this, the honesty, transparency of this. David says, when I am afraid, so he acknowledges, yeah, I deal with fear, just like I deal with fear, you deal with fear. When I am afraid, but he says, I don't stop there. When I'm afraid... I do something. I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In other words, he, he doesn't get overwhelmed by those fearful thoughts. He takes his thoughts, he turns them to the word of God, to the promises of God, to put his trust in God. In God, he says, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Because God is victorious. He is all-knowing. He is in control. And He has a purpose in all of this. Although I may not see it right now, I can trust Him. That's what He's saying. So He begins by saying, yes, I'm afraid, but then I trust in God. Therefore, I won't be afraid because I know God will be true to His Word. Number three, keep on being faithful. Keep on being faithful. Just one step at a time. Don't get so caught up on what might or might not happen in the future. But just look at today. Blossom where God has placed you. That's the lesson we learned from the Apostle Paul during his imprisonment. He didn't know whether he was going to be executed or not. So he, he didn't focus on what might or might not happen. He said, God has placed me right now in this, in this prison, so I'm going to blossom where he's planted me. And that's the attitude these Smyrnans had to have, the attitude that you and I have to have in adversity and trial. He says, be faithful unto death. Leave the outcome to me. You just keep focused on me. Remain faithful to me this day, doing whatever is the righteous thing to do, the right thing to do, looking 
to, for this situation to be a platform, a backdrop for me to display myself in and through you. And Revelation 12, 11, what a great verse. And they overcame him. How? Because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to death. And then forth as we close, look to the reward. Nothing wrong with looking to the rewards Christ offers you. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Compare that to James 1.12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, once he gets through the trial and is approved by me, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who what? Love him. And then I love Luke 6, verses 22 and 23. What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man. When that happens, be happy. Yes, leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. That little poem at the end of your sermon notes, I really don't know who wrote that, but I found that. It was very meaningful to me. I think it might have been written by William Booths, the founder of Salvation Army, his daughter, Evangeline, when she was put in jail on a particular occasion. But whoever wrote it, it's, it's, it's a precious truth. And it is a person, it is a believer that has been jailed, that is in prison for their faith. And notice they wrote, Best beloved of my soul, I am here alone with thee, and my prison is a heaven since thou sharest it with me. Amen? And that's what the Smyrnans found their hope in, and that's what we find our hope in as we go through trial, that Jesus is with us, and that he will remain faithful as we look to him, to love him, and to honor him through the faithfulness of our lives. So as we extend the invitation today, there's a challenge for all of us here. Uh, I, I can't think of a message that would bring any greater conviction to believers and, and the need uh, to maintain Jesus as our first love. And uh, through maintaining him as our first love, uh, knowing that heartfelt worship, that we remain faithful in suffering, and, and we put our trust and our hope in Him. And uh, I don't know what you're going through right now, what particular adversity or trial, but every truth that we share applies to you. And so take this truth and apply it to your heart and your life. And then if you're here and you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I challenge you because Jesus is the one who came to this world to die for your sins, and He rose again. He's alive. And he says, follow me. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and be willing to honor me in life and death. Put your trust in him. Turn from your sin, surrender to him as Lord, to follow him. And you'll find his grace, you'll find his love, you'll find his peace, even as these wonderful Smyrnan Christians found his grace, peace, and love in the midst of their time of terrible trial. So stand as the invitation is extended. I'll remain right here. If anyone has a decision, a public decision of any nature, uniting with the church or public profession of faith, uh, but let's all respond in our hearts to the truth we've heard today.